If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free, which for us is really important. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please keep in mind that the content of this episode does not constitute medical advice, but is purely for the purpose of education. This episode was supported by the National Geographic Society Emergency Fund for Journalists. Today, we're talking with Dr. Melan Han, a professor of medicine and the chief of pulmonary and critical care at the University of Michigan. Dr. Han is also a spokesperson for the American Lung Association and the author of Breathing Lessons, A Doctor's Guide to Lung Health. She received her medical degree from the University of Washington in Seattle and completed her residency in internal medicine and fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Michigan. Dr. Han's research is focused on chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, also known as COPD. So welcome, Dr. Han. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. So the lungs have been top of mind for the last few years, given the COVID pandemic. But first, let's talk a little bit about basic lung physiology. Besides the obvious keeping us alive, why are the lungs important? So it's funny, I feel like the lungs have been top of mind, and then they haven't been. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I was getting lots of questions about how the lungs work and mechanical ventilators, and people really, really wanted to kind of understand. I actually had a fun opportunity to do another podcast, Freakonomics, where we chatted about that. But one of the things that's been frustrating to me is I feel like as the pandemic has droned on, people have tried to move on that we've sort of forgotten about this issue, particularly when it comes to addressing the fact that we have 11 million Americans, for instance, with long-haul COVID. So I appreciate the fact that you're focusing on this, and I really hope that the listeners can take something away that will help them. But basically speaking, the lungs work by getting air in and out, exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide. I think One of the interesting things that people don't realize is that the lungs are a little bit like a rubber band. And when the diaphragm contracts, it sort of pulls that rubber band and that's what allows the air to come in and then you kind of let it go and then the air is expelled. And where that physiology gets sort of interesting is when we think about mechanical ventilators, which don't work like that and are actually pushing air in as opposed to letting it be pulled in passively. I think that's one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that mechanical ventilators actually force air into the lungs. And so that's what makes it so uncomfortable for many patients who are in an ICU and have to breathe that way because we have to sedate them pretty heavily. I think the other thing a lot of people don't realize is if you've ever had general surgery, you've probably been on a mechanical ventilator. Most people, I think, well, that's only for super, super sick people. Actually, it's a technique that we use pretty commonly. But I think maybe the other thing to think about when it comes to the lungs that's also relevant is the fact that in order for the lungs to do this amazing job with gas exchange, the red blood cells actually have to kind of file through single file and be really, really close 
to the air. So in order to make that work, the air sacs are actually kind of paper thin when you look at them on a microscopic level to allow that to happen. And so if it fills with fluid, like with pneumonia, or you have any scarring, and it causes that paper thin lining to become thicker or filled with fluid, that's when the lungs fail. So it works really well when it's perfect. But the other thing that I think is somewhat interesting to contemplate is that in order for the lung to do its job at the same time, not just it's trying to get air in and do this important gas exchange job for us, but at the same time, it's also trying to filter. So it's also got allergens and mold and dust and smoke and air pollution and bacteria and viruses that it's all trying to deal with, keep the bad stuff out, get the good stuff in sort of all at the same time. And I think while it sounds like it shouldn't be a problem, I think unfortunately it it has been, sometimes the lungs actually work too well. And you can actually have a lot of damage accumulate before people know that anything's wrong. We do a really bad job at diagnosing lung disease in this country of screening for lung disease. So I think there's probably a lot of people that have damage that don't even know it. So I think you touched on this a little bit, but do you think that there's kind of a disconnect between what most people think they know about how our lungs work and how they actually function? Yeah, I think it's both that and the disconnect between, I think most people think about lung disease as someone, not them, right? So, well, okay, like no one's ever saying anything to me. I feel like I breathe mine. Lung disease is other. It's not me. But the fact of the matter is, is that lung disease was the number one cause of death in the United States last year. That even before the pandemic, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease was third leading cause of death in the U.S. And pneumonia among children is a major killer worldwide. And the other thing that is really fascinating to me is that the more we do studies where we actually bring people in for lung function testing and get CAT scans to look at them, which we wouldn't have done necessarily clinically, we're finding more and more people have what I'm going to call subclinical levels of lung injury. So maybe don't quite meet definition, but there's definitely something abnormal. So the fact that people think that you can, for instance, smoke forever and not have anything wrong, that's a myth. Most people who smoke do have some evidence of damage on their lungs. It's just not been looked at or picked up, but it actually goes even deeper than that. So for instance, there was this really fascinating study that was done by Harvard, and they found that In Oregon, where there were a lot of smoke exposure from wildfires, that there were almost an excess 20,000 cases of COVID and an extra 1,000 deaths, which means that this is one place where we could actually identify a cause of lung injury that probably most of those people didn't even know they had, that was then causing them to have increased susceptibility to another virus. We did this other study at the University of Michigan where we looked at CT scans of people that ultimately ended up getting lung biopsies for COVID. And we found that a whole bunch of them actually had abnormalities on CT scans that no one had ever told them about before they ever got COVID. And so I actually think that there are a lot more people out there that have something wrong, some kind of level of inflammation going on that no one is picked up on, but ultimately could have clinical consequences. And for the first time, we're actually seeing that and measuring that because of the pandemic, but I think it's been there all along. Yeah. So speaking of lung disease as sort of this other category, 
What do you think are the three most common lung diseases faced by patients and how can we avoid getting them or exacerbating them besides fewer wildfires, obviously? (laughs) Well, you know, off the top of my head, I probably should actually pull out something so that I actually tell you what the three most common ones are. But I think as a clinician, probably some of the ones that we encounter most commonly would be things, well, there's acute diseases and chronic diseases. So for chronic diseases, probably things like COPD, asthma, and lung cancer are some of the top ones that we as physicians probably deal with. But on a more short-term basis, a lot of things like bronchitis and pneumonia are super common. But I think also what makes the job of being a lung doctor difficult is there's also a ton of really rare things that can cause lung disease. And so sometimes I actually liken it to being a bit of a detective because you can have stuff going on for really long periods of time. And then you're stuck. When I see a patient, I will honestly, I'll start with birth and I'll get all sorts of history about you're asking, well, what can we do to protect yourself? It really starts at birth or even before birth. So I think about lung development and the need to protect lungs and think about your lung health in three stages, actually. So there's the period in the womb, and that's where it actually matters. We know that moms who are exposed to air pollution, that can be a problem. We know moms exposed to nicotine, no matter how that exposure occurs, we know that nicotine, for instance, can cause the airways of infants to develop abnormally. They become really long and tortuous that actually can predispose kids to asthma and poor lung function. So getting good prenatal care is important. And then being born prematurely can have significant long-term impacts because the lungs are just finishing development right at about the time of birth. And in boys, that tends to be a bit delayed compared to girls. So with our ability, the technology is advancing on both fronts, our ability to help babies survive earlier, but hopefully also lung protective strategies for infants. But I think it'll be interesting to see I, for instance, just saw a patient not too long ago, and he's fairly young and was telling me about how hard he was working to keep up with his buddies at basketball. And he kind of vaguely, so I started asking his mom, tell me about your childhood. Were you born early? And all of a sudden, oh, well, yeah, I was born early. And I had all sorts of problems that first year of life. And it turns out he had really significant lung disease, but sort of had kind of just fallen through the cracks because we don't routinely measure lung function in children. You know, we will check to see if a child's height is off and we'll do all other sorts of things to make sure that kids are developing normally. But there was this study that was published recently that showed that half of the people that develop COPD, and there's roughly 30 million adults with COPD in the US, roughly half of people who developed COPD didn't develop it because of exposures in adulthood, but rather had abnormal lung function coming into adulthood which I think is actually shocking. It means that a good percentage of stuff that we see in adulthood is actually related to stuff that happened way before adulthood. And so as a mom, I have an eight-year-old, I think about things like making sure he has his vaccines, trying to ensure he's in a smoke-free environment. I think there's other things like anti-idling policies at school and where schools are located in terms of, we know kids who have schools that are near freeways, have lower lung function and are more prone to asthma exacerbations. I think about air pollution in the home, things like running the exhaust fan on my stove to help the filters when I think they're needed, to paying attention to bad air pollution days, to watching things like VOCs. 
So I think there's all this stuff that we do need to be much more conscious of and, and protecting kids. And then we finally get into the stuff with later teen years and adulthood where we're aware that things like vaping and smoking and occupational exposures are important. But I think even there, we think about, oh, well, I'm not a coal miner. There's like these classically dirty jobs. But what about hairdressers? What about nail technicians that are exposed to all sorts of chemicals? So I think we just need to really broaden our thinking when we think about lung health and lung protective strategies. Yeah, I had a patient like this the other day where he'd had just really strange symptoms for months and months and months and was trying to get to the bottom of exposures that he'd had. And he'd worked in the Navy and he just didn't remember things that he'd been exposed to. So I can definitely see how that can have long-term impacts even far in the future from when you have an actual exposure. So you recently published a book called Breathing Lessons. So in your book, you discuss how a simple and inexpensive spirometry test could save many lives, particularly if we begin doing these as young adults. So can you first explain spirometry and then tell us why it's important to potentially consider doing these tests? So spirometry is just a measure of lung function. It's So I actually did some research for the book that people think everything she wrote in the book, she just learned in medical school and she just wrote it down. But actually, there's a lot in there I did not learn either in medical school or residency or fellowship. And I actually had to do some very specific research for the book because, yes, I know I understand how to diagnose and treat lung diseases, but we don't spend a lot of time as physicians talking about protective strategies prevention and preventative medicine at all, at all. It's just not part of our, right? I mean, even when you think about our diagnosis codes, the CPT codes are all, (laughs) you don't have a lot of tons of prevention codes. It's all, well, they have this diagnosis and I'm going to treat. So I had to really change my thinking and do quite a bit of research for the book. One of the things that I really was struggling to get my head around for the book was why don't we do more spirometry in this country? Why don't we measure lung function tests? Why is this nobody's recommendation? Why is nobody doing it? Why isn't it not that hard? Doesn't expose anyone to radiation. You don't have to poke anyone. It's harmless from a patient perspective. And so I went back and I did this research. The funny thing is that sort of the forerunner to the modern day spirometer was invented by a gentleman that was actually an actuary. And he figured out that measuring lung function was associated with mortality. And so he was using it for his actuary tables. (laughs) But somehow we lost that. So the thing is, it was sort of clunky. It was like this inverted bell with a tubing and water. It's not like something a doctor could throw in their doctor's bag. But if you contrast that to, say, a stethoscope and measuring blood pressure. So the original blood pressure cuff, when it was first invented, was actually not combined with a stethoscope as we would perform it today. The combination to combine it with a stethoscope to get both systolic and diastolic actually happened at the turn of the century, so in the early 1900s. And when they kind of put two and two together like that, suddenly you had this thing that the doctors could put in their bag, they could do it. And this is going to sound really pathetic, but it made doctors look cool. And they thought that if they went into some wealthy patron's home and they did this, that it would distinguish their skill sets. And so you have to remember this concept of evidence-based medicine is very new. (laughs) We we used to practice this way. So the funny part is measuring lung function did not catch on, measuring blood pressure did. And so as time went on, 
ultimately the evidence base grew. We had studies like Framingham that they incorporated cardiovascular measures in, and then they were able to prove, oh gosh, you know what? If you measure blood pressure, that's associated with strokes and heart attacks. And then we figured out how to prevent it. We've never measured lung function. So we don't have quite as much data and studies to say that if you have it and you intervene, it's going to make a difference. So then nobody wants to recommend everybody should get it. So then nobody gets it. So then we diagnose everybody really late. So then you can't intervene. And it's just, it's this vicious cycle that goes, just keeps going round and round and round. And so I keep thinking about how do we break the cycle? And so I wish we were getting lung function in kids and young adults or teenagers, because then we'd know if things were veering off track, but we aren't doing it. And right now, is it a recommendation? No, it's not. But I will say that if you are having respiratory symptoms or you had any severe respiratory events as a kid, or you know you've had exposures, I think people need to have a very low threshold to say to their physician, I'm worried about my lung function because of I grew up in breathing secondhand smoke, or I get episodes of acute bronchitis five times a year that I just can't quite recover from, or I'm having a hard time just like keeping up in my exercise class. And honestly, I think the threshold should needs to be that low for doctors to check lung function because the earlier we can figure out that there's an issue, the earlier we can get people either started on the right thing or maybe remove an exposure that somebody didn't know that was causing a problem. Maybe it's your job or the fact that you Unfortunately, as you know, birds are sometimes associated with lung disease. There might be something that you could fix, but you're not going to know if we don't check. So I think right now that the thing is, is if you're concerned, you go and you ask your doctor, I would like a breathing test. It's called spirometry. It's really easy to get. Either doctors will have it in their office or you can be referred to a local clinic or a hospital or satellite where it's done. It takes about half an hour. It's really easy. You just blow really hard into a tube. One of the funny things about spirometry that I also realized when I was writing the book was that lung doctors are very, apparently were very particular because in order to do spirometry correctly, you have to repeat the maneuver several times. So that's why it takes a while is it because they want to insist that the measure be repeatable. And with it being repeatable, that means it's very accurate. The funny thing is we don't hold blood pressure to that same standard. As you know, if you were to get a perfect blood pressure measurement, the person's supposed to sit down and wait 15 minutes, and you might check it three times, you take an average of the measurements, we never do that for blood pressure. We kind of use it as sort of a screening, and then we'll just kind of keep rechecking it and rechecking it until we kind of feel like we have a good average. And I sometimes wonder whether perfect has been the enemy of good. So people are afraid, sometimes doctors are afraid to even order it because they're like, oh, you know, my MAs are going to have, or someone in my office is going to have to spend all this time trying to meet the standards for getting the perfect test. And maybe we'd be better off just getting a test and then at least screening for it and then maybe moving somebody on, doing it in the office and then moving somebody on to a certified lab if there's a problem. Those are all such good points. And I think really speaks to how we practice medicine and how evidence-based medicine is critically important, but also using clinical common sense to do what's right by our patients also is really important. So yeah, I mean, you convinced me. I want to go get some spirometry done for myself. <laughs> I'd never had it done. In fact, well, I'd never had it done until I had it done as a fellow so that I could understand how the test was done and better interpret it, it for my patients. But, but to be honest, if it hadn't been for that, I never would have had it done at all. So 
often, and especially over the last two years, we have really focused on sort of the negative and the doom and gloom of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, the pandemic has actually increased science's understanding about many things that will forever change medicine, public health, and development of vaccines moving forward. So can you talk about some of these advancements, particularly for pulmonary health? To be honest, one of them is just how respiratory viruses are transmitted. So if you think back to being the pandemic, do you remember that originally we were told it's all about social distancing and no, you don't need to bother wearing a mask, right? And then somewhere in the middle of the pandemic, that message, the public health messaging flipped. And all of a sudden we were being told, oh no, you got to wear masks. Well, what happened there was for years, people had been using this somewhat random five micron cutoff as to the size of a particle and whether it was likely to have what we call aerosol transmission versus droplet transmission. And for anything that's a larger particle, like a droplet, The thought was, well, you might spray it when you're talking, but it's heavy and it'll fall quickly. And so if something is really spread by droplets, then that's where social distancing becomes important. But anything that's small that might actually, quote, get aerosolized, those small particles can hang in the air for quite some time. And those are the kinds of things that you need a mask for. And we originally thought that viruses like SARS-CoV-2 were not spread via aerosols. We thought that they were spread via droplets because of some really old literature that, interestingly, a lot of scientists began to question and push and push and push. And finally, you just couldn't ignore the fact that despite social distancing, a lot of people were getting sick. So obviously something in the bath was wrong. And they had to simply accept that viruses like SARS-CoV-2 are transmitted via aerosols. And that changed masks. But I think it honestly is going to change how we think about viruses and transmission of respiratory viruses for a long time. I mean, we already knew that certain ones were, but like influenza, I don't think we thought necessarily, we thought it was more droplet as opposed to aerosol. And so I think, I mean, I don't know about you, I'm still wearing a mask in my hospital. I'm not sure that mask is ever leaving. (laughs) Yeah. I actually would wear a mask during flu season before the pandemic and almost always with pediatrics. Yeah. And I think it's smart. And I think because the understanding of science is involved, I think we're probably all going to do that. And to be honest, like my son's school almost got shut down before the pandemic due to a flu outbreak, but we know how to fix that now, right? We now know that masks are important. And to be honest, the funny thing is like, even before the pandemic, when I would go to like, I don't know, clean out a dusty garage or something, I wouldn't think about putting on a mask. But now because they're everywhere, and I'm thinking about my lung health constantly, I'm much more cognizant and probably have a much lower threshold to throw one on if I'm cleaning out the basement or the garage or doing a dusty cleanup job of any sort. I think that's true for me too. Absolutely. Where over the last two years, now I'm really thinking about lung health and ways that we can filter some of those noxious particles out of the air. So with wildfires, even if it's really bad and it's raining ash, I'm going to be wearing a mask for sure. Yeah. Or maybe that isn't the day you go do your marathon practice or something like that. Because the data that I showed that it does cause measurable inflammation And besides the risk for increased risk for other respiratory infections, we also know that breathing in air pollution, it actually gets into the blood vessels, can increase risk for cardiovascular events. So I think that that is definitely one thing that's changed, hopefully, is that people are just much more mindful 
of what you're breathing in and trying to control it or to protect yourself in some way. I think another advance that to me is super exciting is just the huge leap forward we've seen with vaccine technology and antivirals. There are all sorts of companies that are now investigating like vaccines for the common cold or just the concept that you could give patients at-home test kits that they could test for certain panels of viruses beyond SARS-CoV-2 and could potentially have an armamentarium of things that could be given pretty quickly to stop it. I mean, there was that for flu a while ago, right? But you have to get it started pretty quickly. And there just wasn't this sort of energy and investment in towards figuring out how do we test people quickly enough that we can actually make a difference. And for patients, as you know, I'm sure you see this in the emergency room all the time, particularly for patients with chronic medical conditions, if they contract what for the rest of us might be a quote unquote cold, they can get pretty sick. So I think we're going to, in the next few years, see a wider array of vaccines for things like respiratory syncytial virus, which is a huge issue for kids, for tests and treatments for, quote unquote, the common cold, which has a big impact for a huge swath of the population. So I think to me, that's another really exciting advance. The other thing is virtual care. We were working on it before the pandemic, but it's funny, the University of Michigan had this goal of getting, I think, 20, 25% of the visits done virtually within, I don't know, the next year or two. And I think they accomplished it in like weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that from a lot of people at a lot of different hospitals where telemedicine was sort of on the edge of what they were doing, but very, very quickly advanced and now is here to stay. Yeah. So I think there are some hopefully good things that have come out of the pandemic. Absolutely. And so speaking of protecting ourselves, you've talked about building a lung reserve from early childhood to early adulthood and keeping our lungs healthy in our later years. So what are some of the top things that parents can do or young adults can do to protect their long-term lung health? Right. So I talked about a bunch of them already, including vaccinations and protecting from indoor and outdoor air pollution. If there's parents listening, vaping is not gone away. That problem this acute lung injury that you can get from vaping called E-Valley. We still have that with us. There are still kids that are developing severe immediate lung injury, even to the point of requiring lung transplants. The problem is, is that remains a very unregulated area, despite the FDA's sort of lukewarm commitment towards fixing it. I think that they're pretty underfunded and they were in this process. They actually were sued by American Academy of the Pediatrics and American Lung Association to actually enforce regulation over electronic cigarettes. And they've just been really, really, really slow to do so. And it can be extremely insidious. You know, parents may not even know what the devices look like. It may just look like a USB drive sitting on your counter. So while I think it's never too early to start talking to your kids about it, I think middle school is a really good time to start. At least before the pandemic, I think we had roughly a quarter of our kids having used some kind of experimented with some kind of electronic nicotine product. And the scary thing is because they're not regulated, you don't know what extra chemicals are in there. They think it was the vitamin E acetate, but who knows what the next vitamin E is going to be that somebody decides is some interesting flavoring that they're going to just, or propellant or something, they're just going to throw in there. There's the fact that the amount of, you don't always know how much nicotine you're getting because that's not really regulated, at least with a cigarette. There's some general sense of, okay, if I have a pack, it's this, but the overall concentrations of nicotine are much, much higher 
And so the addictive potential, particularly for kids, really, really concerns me. And then I think, you know, as we move into adulthood, as I mentioned, there's all sorts of occupational exposures that we kind of have to be mindful of. But the other thing I did spend some time thinking about with respect to the book is not just defense, but what can you do that's offense <laughs> to, to protect your lungs? And the best data there is actually around exercise. So there's this interesting study called Cardia that was funded by the National Institutes of Health. And what they showed was that young adults, say between the ages of 25 and 35, their peak fitness, aerobic fitness levels at that early adulthood age predicted lung function later in life. And it also, if you could maintain or actually improve that level of fitness over a lifetime, also was associated with higher levels of lung function. And so what we don't know is it could just be, it could just be lung function is in part the lungs, but it's also, to be honest, is influenced by the rib cage and the muscles that surround the chest wall. It could be that these fit individuals just have stronger chest walls and so able to blow better and do better on the lung function test. But there's also some thought that what if exercise is actually anti-inflammatory and it's actually helping to combat some of this other stuff that we're constantly exposed to? We don't know. And so actually, there is this new study that's just kicking off now that is co-funded by the National Institutes of Health and the American Lung Association called the Lung Health Cohort. And actually, if people are interested, it's enrolling all over the country and you'll get free CAT scan and a free function measurement. But we're trying to kind of build some data and understand by actually recruiting some people who are young, who, as we know, are not ever getting lung function tests done anyway to try to then follow these people over a lifetime and to try to get a better sense for who has early levels of lung inflammation and what habits and behaviors and diet, et cetera, are associated with better lung function over a lifetime. So I'm hoping we'll have more information later, but it looks like as of right now, exercise is definitely one of those proactive things that you can do. That's really interesting. And I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. You think about something like runner's high and how it decreases levels of stress and cortisol and how that probably decreases levels of inflammation in the body. So I'm looking forward to hearing the results. We'll have to have you come back and talk about it. It's going to take a while to collect the data. As you might imagine COVID has really impacted our ability to do anything, particularly research-wise. So Everything is just delayed and kicking off late, but we're, I think, hopefully moving in the right direction now. My research is in the same boat. I understand. <laughs> so what are scientists learning about the impact of long COVID on our lungs? Because this is something that's just fairly poorly understood still. And so what do you expect the long-term effects will be on the population at large? Long-haul COVID is so diverse. That is the first thing that I will say. We are seeing some people that no matter what you do to try to test them, we're not coming up with much. Like the lungs look fairly normal. And it could be that there's nerve damage or muscle damage or maybe even microvascular damage or damage to like the really small airways or something that we just are not picking up with our current tools. So that is like a whole subsegment of patients that I think are probably frustrated and, or it could be cardiac effects that don't understand why they still feel awful and are short of breath. So you've got those patients on one end of the spectrum, and then you have patients all the way at the other end of the spectrum who were severely ill, were in the ICU, were on ventilators. And some of them, their lungs look like patients who had severe interstitial lung disease. We're seeing the same kind of scarring patterns 
but it's such a huge variety. We're seeing that. We're also seeing some patients that now have new airway disease and so look a little bit more like asthma. So the other thing that we're seeing is for patients that were hospitalized for COVID, there's a really high rate of rehospitalizations for other things. So they kind of get over that first bout and then they're coming back with some other complications. So I have another patient who kind of got through it and then ended up back in the hospital with blood clots. That's another really common thing that we're seeing. I'm sure you've seen this in the emergency room. Somebody discharged or seen once, comes back with a blood clot. So we're ordering CAT scans to look for them like crazy. And this particular patient I'm thinking about has just had stuttering issues for over a year now. Took forever to recover from the blood clots and then maybe gets fluid around the lung. And then the next time they get a cold, it just sends them into a tailspin. The lungs are just more fragile than they were. And so unfortunately, I actually was just talking to someone else about this before the call. We have failed to see the level of investment from the government that I think we're going to need to really understand what's going on with patients with lung health COVID and how to treat them. But, you know, to be honest, this problem pre-existed the pandemic. So as you know, when patients who get really sick with COVID, we call that ARDS. It's just severe lung inflammation. We didn't have good treatments for ARDS before the pandemic. I mean, all doctors know that mechanical ventilation, which we have to use sometimes to save people's lives, is a really a double-edged sword because if not used to properly, can actually cause lung injury due to overinflation and stretching. And we just have not seen the level of investment and prioritization. I keep looking at, for instance, appropriation bills and everyone's coming out with, well, we need to be prepared for the next pandemic. And I've yet to see a single plan that says anything about, well, we need to better understand how to treat patients with acute lung injury or how to help patients recover or I don't understand why it continues to be a blind spot. And it's just absolutely mind boggling and baffling to me. But I would say if there's someone out there that is suffering from long haul COVID, the first thing to do would be obviously see your doctor, get in to see a lung doctor. Sometimes the lung doctor is going to be helpful and sometimes it may end up being something else, in which case many centers are now have what we call a multidisciplinary COVID clinic where it's not just lung doctors. It might be lung doctors and heart doctors. And we're seeing more, we're seeing a spike in diabetes. There's just so many things that this virus seems to be able to do to certain people that it may require more extensive investigation. Yeah. I mean, I think it requires a lot more extensive investigation because, I mean, the symptoms of long COVID are just so wide ranging. It's amazing. And it's very difficult to pinpoint sort of just a diagnosis of exclusion where we know there are other things that are not causing your symptoms. So maybe it's related to this. So I completely agree. And also speaking of research dollars, in your book, you talk about the fact that COPD and lower respiratory infections are the third and fourth leading causes of death globally, but rank 13th and 17th, respectively, for research grants. So why do you think the money isn't being spent on this research? I think it's probably a huge conglomeration of things. But I think one major contributor is that there has been this assumption for many years that lung disease is someone else's problem and it was their fault. So when we think about things like lung cancer and COPD, people automatically associate those with smoking, despite the fact that roughly a quarter of people with COPD never smoked, despite the fact that lung cancer is actually the number one cancer killer among women. And there is a predominance when you look at 
who gets lung cancer, many more, that there is an imbalance between smokers and non-smokers such that women who are non-smokers are actually at increased risk for getting lung cancer as, as compared to men. I actually just lost a young female colleague, non-smoker, to lung cancer. God, it is so heartbreaking. So I think the problem is, if you look at any disease, like if you look at heart disease, probably some of that is related to too many cheeseburgers. But we don't sit around and say, oh, we're not going to fund heart disease because this is a self-inflicted disease. But it's true that there are certain diseases that because of people either garnering more sympathy or to be honest, patient advocacy groups have strong ability sometimes to affect things. But if you look at who gets lung disease, unfortunately, for certain lung diseases like COPD, it can sometimes be, generally speaking, tends to be associated with lower socioeconomic status. And so historically, you have people that maybe can't speak up for themselves and don't feel comfortable speaking up for themselves because of stigma. But I think what we're now realizing is that lung health and lung disease is now everybody's problem. This is not just some tiny sub-segment of the population. We have 11 million Americans with long-haul COVID. And I am sure this is not our last respiratory pandemic, as much as I wish it were. And so just continue from a funding perspective to ignore it. And I've been working hard with organizations like the American Lung Association and the CPD Foundation to see what we can do to impact appropriations. It's just absolutely mind-boggling to me that it just keeps getting ignored and ignored and ignored. What is one thing that you think everyone can do to improve lung health? Honestly, I think it just comes down to paying attention. Just pay attention to what you're breathing, whether you're outside and it's a bad air quality day. If you smell something funny in your home, investigate it or just be mindful if something is kicking up dose. You're cleaning up a toner spill or like I mentioned, some chemical in the home or your dusty garage like me. If you think that there's a chance you should be wearing a mask, just put the mask on. You all have them now. So. Everyone's got them now, right? So just put it on. Just think and be mindful of your environment. And the thing is, like, I like to garden. I would not go into the garden without wearing gloves because it's just a pain to wash, get the soil out from underneath my fingernails and things like that. So you can put a mask on, but I can wash my hands if I do get my hands dirty. But there's no really easy, I mean, you can do it, but it, I wouldn't recommend it, really easy ways of washing the lungs out. And so what's fascinating, and I, I'm sure you've seen this as well, but part of my research actually involves or has involved taking lungs out from, you know, either patients with lung disease or people who died for another reason. And we study the lungs. And what is shocking is even in a quote unquote healthy person, how much dirt and particulate matter end up in the lungs that you can just physically see just looking at a lung just in front of you. And like people would probably be shocked because yes, the lung can break some stuff down, but there's a lot it cannot break down and it will just sit in your lungs forever. It just accumulates. There's no fixing it over time. So just, you know, you've only got one pair. You can't really clean them. So you've really got to think about prevention at all stages of life. That makes a lot of sense. And I think after hearing this episode, I certainly will be paying much more attention to what I'm breathing. What is one thing you wish everyone knew about COVID-19? I don't think this is new information, but I feel like I have a hard time getting the message through about just how deadly and how capricious it can be. 
everyone thinks it's just like a bad cold. Or when you're not in the ER, when you're not in the ICU, it's very easy to shut those messages out and to think, well, okay, yeah, maybe some random person got really sick. So it's eye-opening to see the young, otherwise healthy people on ventilators in the ICU. It's not just old people with chronic conditions. Yes, that is the majority, but it is not all the people, anybody is at risk for getting sick. And the other, to be honest, eye-opening thing for me was I actually am on the COVID committee for my son's school and actually enacted weekly PCR testing for the entire school. So I've had a very good sense of just how much COVID there is in my son's school because we've been testing weekly now for over a year and we're still picking up cases weekly. So it's not gone. And in fact, what I would say is the number of people we're picking up on a weekly basis just through this kind of screening method that I have is still much higher than where we were at this time last year. So what I think right now is if you look at those case rates that are published by whatever CDC, New York Times, I think they're all much lower than what's actually out there right now. I think people aren't testing because a lot of people are vaccinated. And I think there's a lot of people that just aren't getting picked up. And it's good. They're not getting as sick. It's true. They're not getting as sick, as sick. And so we're not seeing the huge spike in hospitalizations, but we are starting to see, at least at my institution, the hospitalization numbers are starting to tick back up. We don't know what's coming with the additional variants. So as much as I would love to throw up my hand and say, goalpost, <laughs> we're done. What I'm seeing is that it's still there. People are still getting sick. Fortunately, the people who are vaccinated are not getting as sick but it's definitely not gone. I think it's higher, honestly, right now, at least in Michigan, than it was this time last year. And it can be quite deadly for the unvaccinated, no matter how healthy you were to begin with. I'm sure you're seeing the same thing. Yeah, I definitely see people who are unvaccinated who are much sicker. And we still see some cases of people who are vaccinated, but again, they're not imminently being intubated. So I agree that it's still here. It's not gone. We should still remain cautious and continue to be aware of what's going on so that we can hopefully prevent ever getting back to kind of where we were at some of the worst parts of the pandemic. So any final words of advice or final thoughts before we wrap this up? Well, it was a pleasure to get to chat with you. And I hope if there's something that people take away from it, it's just to be more mindful, not just what if they breathe, but their own symptoms and to have a low threshold of chatting with their doctor about whether they need more testing, don't let yourself get blown off. The scary thing is that of the patients in the United States that carry a diagnosis of COPD, only a third, I think, have actually undergone appropriate diagnostic testing. So doctors, unfortunately, have a really bad habit of making diagnoses of lung disease without actually doing appropriate diagnostic testing. So it is a problem. And so that's where, whether it's you read my book or whatever, but arming yourself that was the goal that I had with writing the book. I want people to be informed because unfortunately, this is a scenario where people are not informed and doctors are not doing a good enough job. So I felt like if I could take the information to the lay public, then people can have the power to protect themselves and their own families. And that's really what it's about. Doctors are really good at educating each other, but not our patients. So I love what you're doing with this book. Where can our listeners get your book or follow your work? It's available at pretty much every major book retailer, whatever your favorite one is, whether that's Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Walmart or Target. You can also follow me on pretty much every social media channel, as well as I do have a website, drmalenhan.com. 
What are your social media handles? For Instagram, it's Dr. Milan Han. And I also actually have a small YouTube channel as well, which is called Breathing Lessons by Dr. Milan Han. My Twitter handle is at Milan underscore Han. So I think I'm also on LinkedIn as well. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you for joining us. And thank you so much for what you're doing to help educate everyone about lung health. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, comment, or subscribe. This episode was supported by the National Geographic Society Emergency Fund for Journalists. Until next time.